Today's episode is a conversation with Arutha Kulasinghe, the first of many. He has been one of the pioneers of the spatial transcriptomic space, and we speak on why spatial context is so important and how it can be used for both discovery and translation, how it can translate into viable targets or even screening tools. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. So thank you so much, Arutha, for coming on to the podcast. It's such a joy to have you on finally. Thanks, Jonathan, for the invite. I look forward to this discussion. I've heard a lot about you and the things that you do, so very keen to learn more and, and to have a chat with you. I'm extremely flattered. I would say the majority of the spatial transcriptomic world knows you by now, but could you take maybe a couple minutes to introduce yourself and what you do? We've sort of grown up in spatial, and it's a sort of a new term that I've had to put together. I thought about this the other day, how have we ended up in this position? And we're sort of early adopters in this, where we were doing a lot of low-plex, basic, basic, basic IHC work, and it always piqued our interest. Two colors looked interesting, three colors looked interesting, four, could we do more, could we do more? And at the time, early technologies were coming through, and then we were in the right place at the right time, I guess. So yeah, we've sort of fallen into it, but we've also grown up in an era of spatial, which has been really exciting for myself and my lab. My lab specifically tries to apply spatial to tease out the tumor microenvironment and use that to predict the response to IO therapy in skin cancer, head and neck cancer, lung cancer. And in doing so, when COVID hit, we pivoted, you know, it's the forbidden word in COVID to pivot during research, but we pivoted and we looked at lungs, hearts, placentas, and brains. And it's been a fascinating journey just looking at tissue and using a lens of discovery. It's almost like you're looking at uh, tissue from a completely new landscape. So that's sort of our background. Yeah, the next question I actually had was talking about the DSP. And as you were mentioning, could it be more than four colors? <laughs> our, our morphology markers alone are just four colors. And I guess like looking at IHC previously, it would only have been on the protein side. I know when the geomics hit, it was only 84 plex. But as it progressed, what were your thoughts as those milestones were hit? We were initially just astounded by being able to do 40, 50 plex protein. And at that time, like you said, the 84 plex RNA came out and it was an experiment we wanted to run in the background. And as we waited to run it, Joe dropped the 1800 plex at AGBT, I think 2019. And so we committed to that 1800 plex for a number of cancer projects, but also COVID, funny enough. And even with a cancer backbone, it had a lot of immune cell profiles, immune cell typing, transcript data there. And it was super interesting being able to even use a lower plex targeted panel for spatial. And then whole transcriptome hit the market within a couple of months. And that was another revolution, right? Everyone wanted to go from targeted to whole transcriptome, but we sort of were conservative in our approach and conservative in the questions we wanted to ask at that whole transcriptome level, because we really wanted to understand how do you go from that 84 plex to the 1800 plex. And then when you move from the 84 plex up uh, from the 1800 plex up, how that data resolves. So we run targeted and whole transcriptome now in the lab. So again, the RNA was very foreign to us. We've done bulk in previous VN and obviously single cell, but spatial and, and being able to get that resolution is really powerful. This episode has been planned a long time before. I had always planned on speaking to you at some point. So back when I was reading the papers and trying to familiarize myself with the material, I think I had a question on why you use the CTA panel, but I assume that was just what was available at that point in time. But it was great that all those immune cell markers were available to you and useful in that sense. 
Absolutely. I think the time at which we ran the 1800 Plex was when that was available. And the whole transcriptome was very early days for that. So we were very comfortable in running the targeted panel. We knew that the robustness of the assay was there. And so I think that was sort of our approach. And we've used that on the backbone of cardiac COVID-19 projects. We've used it on the backbone of COVID lung projects. And since then, we have run whole transcriptomes over the same samples. But one, it gave us a layer of orthogonal validation, being able to run the whole transcriptome, but it was an assay that was available at the time. And that five genes per probe approach was very robust in our hands. That kind of like goes against the sentiment that sometimes I hear that we need the whole transcriptome, but not necessarily. What you've mentioned is that with a targeted approach, you can do more than enough in terms of discovery and understanding, right? Absolutely, Jonathan. And that's what we showed in the COVID work, where we identified a unique gene signature that was predictive of disease severity through from the discovery pipeline through to a biomarker study using the 1800 Plex panel. Yes, we did find that on the whole transcriptome, but it still shows you that you have good coverage at the targeted panel. Obviously, when you hear about a new toy that comes out, and then when I say toy whole transcriptome, people want that. And now it's probably, you know, single cell or whatever it is. But I think it's having familiarity with the technology technology and the assay and the robustness of the assay for your question. And if you've got sufficient coverage and cost could be a factor in that, a CTA, we still run that within the lab. And then I guess leading on from that, we've spoken about spatial for about five minutes, but what would you say to someone who has no exposure to spatial, but wants to perhaps analogize it or understand it a little bit better? Yeah, so I use this analogy a lot. It's essentially the Google Maps, right? So you've got a Google Maps approach for tissue. You can walk across that tissue and understand different cell types, different regions of interest based on your question, whether it's infectious disease, I want to know where the virus is localizing to. I want to know what the proteins and the transcript that's being liberated in those areas. For a new user, it really shows your disease biology with a different lens and you're able to really drill down to a lot of information and you can get very granular on that. It's a an incredible discovery tool. I know you've mentioned some of the applications that you've used the Geomix DSP for, and can I know where it sits in your workflow, especially with the upcoming Cosmics? Yeah, great question, Jonathan. So Geomix is a workhorse in the lab. So we've got multiple instruments that we use. One sort of dedicated to FFPE projects where we're running 50, 60, 100 samples type projects, skin cancer, head, neck cancer, lung cancer on mass. And these are archival pathology banked samples. So probably the hardest tissue type to work with, but we're able to get robust data off it. So it's a workhorse in the lab where we're able to run up to eight slides a day. And in a short time frame, we can push out 100 slide project pretty robustly. So Geomix is that workhorse. And then what about Cosmics down the workflow in the future? We're trying to figure out where in that pipeline it sits. So for certain tumors that we find really interesting, the ones with tissue lymphoid structures and things like that in the microenvironment, which seem to be key in predicting response to IO, where we want to do a deep dive and really hone into that, we then would use a cosmics type approach to drill down on that single cell or that cell type of interest. So I, I see the cosmics sitting downstream of the geomics. You probably run geomics up front and then downstream you'd run Cosmics on a subset of samples where you have very specific questions and you want to drill down on cell types or signal that's very localized to single cells. That sounds interesting to me because then the geomics is almost like a second function of triaging what should then go to cosmic, especially from what you mentioned, even tumors are extremely heterogeneous and sometimes they can express multiple subtypes, correct me if I'm wrong. So then honing in into the single cells and knowing exactly where is going to respond to what? Am I in the right ballpark? 
Exactly, Jonathan. So a lot of the time when we look at tissues, it can be heterogeneous. Some of them can be very homogeneous. So being able to differentiate those two up front using geomics and the ones in which we're getting really interesting signal from exploring that with a cosmics lens becomes very powerful. I don't see us running hundreds of samples on cosmics as a workhorse, but I see the geomics really being able to do that initial work, getting that bulk breakdown of the tissue, the different regions of interest, and then drill down using the cosmics. You've mentioned a bunch of times that the geomics was used for pure discovery, but when it comes to ROI selection, sometimes you really need a specific scientific question or a specific research question, and you need to know somewhat what you're looking for. How do you marry the two thoughts of having a discovery tool, but also needing very clear questions? That's a great question. The way we approach it is that we have clinical cohorts where we have a specific question we're trying to answer. So how do these two cohorts potentially differ in response to a drug? In the case of head and neck cancer, we're trying to look at patients that did really well or were sensitive to immunotherapy and then patients that were resistant to an immunotherapy, right? So we've got these two different cohorts and then we might make a tissue microarray. We might look at their whole tissue sections, but then we get them pathology annotated with a pathologist that collaborates on the project. Project, they would annotate the tissues at the macro level, demarcate the tumor stroma, the different areas of interest, the vasculature, the muscle, the fat, the lymphoid structures, the tissue lymphoid structures, the vasculature. So now we have an H&E stain that's annotated by a pathologist for both cohorts. Then we would then identify similar structures between both cohorts. So I want to compare the tissue lymphoid structures from one to the other. I want to compare the macrophages from the response group versus the non-response group. So that's how you combine the two. But you almost need to define that up front and be very specific around the question you're trying to ask of the data set. I wouldn't recommend doing it the other way because you end up with a lot of data and probably a lot of hypotheses and chasing your tail a bit. So if you have a very distinct cohort, you're likely to find patterns in the data that suggest an immune responsive phenotype that you can then go and validate. We look at it retrospectively. So we go and look at pathology banks, hospital biobanks. We do the discovery in those studies and then we go validate the targets prospectively in a clinical trial or a prospective study. I was smiling the whole time just now because I've heard that suggestion that perhaps taking another section and doing a H&E stain with the guide of a pathologist would be extremely useful. And indeed, pathologists are the ones who have also found a lot of utility in, in the ability to look at tissue digitally. It's almost critical if we don't take pathologists through this journey with us. I don't think showing them the pretty pictures at the end of the experiment is what's needed. We need to integrate them into the workflow because ultimately we are digitizing pathology, right? It's almost critical on every experiment to have a collaborating pathologist because that's ultimately where you'll have translation of your tools. If the pathology community adopts this, then that can potentially be a companion diagnostic assay. For us, the pathologists are integral to the work. And speaking on to clinical archival tissue samples. Could you take maybe a minute or two to talk about the work on COVID, particularly and the key takeaways that you had from those discoveries? Absolutely. The COVID work was fascinating. So we'd done a lot of work in lung cancer. We were looking at the lungs of cancer patients and essentially the workflow and the tissue type was amenable to COVID. And we had a number of collaborators from Brazil and the US that had rapid autopsy samples in August 2020, where COVID hadn't really reached Australia at that time, where there were very few cases. We were able to compare the lungs of COVID-19 patients at rapid autopsy to H1N1, so the 2009 pandemic, and normal control or healthy lungs 
lung tissues. And what we did was we identified the different cell types within the lung tissues that we had, and we liberate the transcript from the CTA panel, the targeted panel, 1800 plex panel. Since then, we have run a whole transcriptome of these samples. And we asked the question, how do the transcriptional signatures differ between these regions of interest. And what we found was that a number of type 1 interferons, specifically IFI-27, was highly upregulated in the lungs of COVID-19 patients. At the time, my background's in cancer biology, IFI-27, right? Hadn't a clue about what it was, right. but we had a pathologist and a virologist on the Zoom call and the pathologist shrieked. She said, we know that's elevated in the blood of COVID-19 patients. We haven't been able to see it in the tissue type or where it's coming from. We suspected it was coming from the lung tissues. This is really great signal that you're achieving. And for an infectious disease person to see that they've been looking at nasal swabs and blood all of their lives. Now the infectious disease community is coming to us with questions around spatial and questions around tissue. So it was fascinating. So we then looked at IFI 27 and we could see that it was conserved in the lungs of COVID patients and in multiple comparative studies too. We then went and looked at the expression levels of IFI 27 in about a thousand patients. This is pre-Omicron before it went yeah. around the world. And we could see that IFI 27 was elevated within the first three days of symptom onset. So this was in the US, Chile, Brazil, Iran, Singapore, Denmark. And we've got a Met archive paper on that, which shows that IFI 27 measured within the first three days is a predictor for disease severity. That was incredible for us. And so we're collaborating with a lab in Sydney where they've commercialized this assay. So it's a blood IFI 27 test that will essentially tell you how sick you're going to get and identify those patients that will likely need hospitalization, ventilation, and ICU. So it shows you, you can go from the discovery work through that translational pipeline to an actual product. And that was fascinating for us. I wish we had the the same rigor in cancer. Obviously, COVID was very important at that time, but it shows you how you could do those discovery studies very efficiently and have that workflow integrated so you can go from discovery through translation pretty rapidly. Is it always the case that peripheral blood and tissue line up or it depends on where you're looking, I assume? Yeah, it depends on where you're looking, Jonathan. So we looked at IFI 27 in the nasal swabs as well in these patients, and we could see a trend in that it was predictive, but it wasn't as conclusive as it was in the blood. So that's why we went with the blood assay, but it shows you those gene signatures are useful to derive signatures that you can go test in, in the peripheral samples of these patients. It's a single gene, single IFI 27 gene expression in the blood is predictive of disease severity when it's measured within the first couple of days. It does fall off in ICU patients, but you really want to be measuring it up front. And it's again in the companion diagnostic space where you're triaging patients. Moving on from all these clinical samples and archival tissue, could you speak of the importance of being able to work on FFPE, especially in a way that is non-destructive? You don't need to go and do a laser microdissection in order to sequence all these things. I think it's key to being able to ask questions from samples that are beyond us in a different setting. I think FFPE is key to being able to understand archival samples from cohorts that have been collected from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and so on. When you've got a wealth of tissue and clinical information in those samples, you can now go and pull those from hospital archives, from pathology biobanks, from commercial biobanks, where you have cohorts of patients that maybe had very rare disease types or had incredible response to certain drugs. And you can go and ask those questions from those retrospective cohorts. We're about to 
run an experiment on a Spanish flu cohort, which is incredible, you know, 100-year-old tissue. And it sort of scared everyone that we were running this because we thought that we wouldn't get RNA data. But if there is a technology that is probably amenable to this, it's probably the DSP. We've been looking at tissues that are 10, 20 years old, and we'll push the envelope here with that experiment. But it goes to show how that infectious disease community is very excited by it, but also the oncology community, because now the clinicians and the oncologists can go back and pull samples from trials where they had very clear outcomes from certain drugs, but they didn't really understand the underlying biology. And now we can go interrogate those studies on mass. So I think having FFP compatibility is key for discovery studies, because if you identify a signature or a gene or, or a protein or a localization, you can then go and validate that prospectively quite quickly. So it's almost like being able to look back in time. And then that's very powerful, I think, for discovery work around a lot of cancer infectious disease studies. I mean, a key takeaway from my undergrad was that there's a lot that we don't know, but we just see that it works, but we don't know exactly what the mechanism it works in. And I guess that can be a scary thought, especially when it comes to the neuroscience field, when you're working with neurotransmitters and sort of like manipulating them to have behavioral outcomes in terms of treatment. So I feel like if that is indeed possible, then it feels like we're approaching the golden age of biology and understanding We've got a different lens to understand these diseases. And ultimately, all these tissues are banked in formalin. And Joe says it well you know, when he says that even normal tissue looks incredible right now. And we're starting to ask very simple questions. You know, how does aging breast tissue look? We're looking at mastectomies where you're looking at 18-year-old, 28-year-old, 38-year-old. And when you look at it over time, what are the changes that undergo in aging and, and things like that? So I think it's an incredible tool to be able to ask those questions and understand what's going on, both at the RNA level, the protein level, and hopefully in the future, epigenetic level, spatial mutation level. I think it's going to evolve pretty rapidly. If you look at how the spatial technologies have evolved, it, it hasn't followed Moore's law, right? We're getting doubling of technologies and plex and resolution every six months so i'm excited to see what you know joe and everyone shows at agbt next year and it was something we discussed this year we were like what can they show because they've essentially got six months right so we're very excited and we're excited on two fronts one from a technology front where we're excited by the technology advancement yeah. but two from a what does this mean for our disease biology what does it mean for the clinic what does it mean for the patient we do a lot of work with patient advocates and lung cancer patients we've got this incredible patient advocate. He's a stage four lung cancer patient. And he says that research is our hope. It's the gap between current therapies and a future therapy. And, and he explains it beautifully. We have the full gambit of translational science, but also patients that are intricately involved in these studies. And ultimately, we, we want benefit for them. So I think from a tech side, it's incredible, but also from the clinical side, what does this mean? What are the new insights? And the clinicians, the oncologists, the scientists, the bioinformatics, the data scientists, Everyone's incredibly excited by this new revolution in biology. Beautiful. And honestly, it's something that I've seen in the medical field for some time. Sometimes we can get carried away with the exciting research stuff, but then we fail to realize that these are real people and it's going to change their lives when all this is available to them. Even in terms of being able to triage and understand who's going to have a horrible COVID response, right? 
No, absolutely. And I think having the patients integrated into your labs and institutes is key to motivating the team and having that drive behind it, because ultimately you want these assays to translate to the clinic and having better therapies is key, right? PDL one therapy costs $150,000 per patient per year, right? Can't be given blindly. It's costly for the government to give and you do get immune related adverse effects in some patients. Yeah. So you need to really identify those that are likely to respond to therapy and give the drugs to those that are likely to achieve benefit. And then potentially for the patients that are unlikely to respond, identify a therapeutic that is likely to work in them. I think this whole personalized medicine revolution is coming of age now with this uptake in Plex. And, you know, when we show this data to the pathologists, they get incredibly inspired. And a number of them have come to us and they're like, we want to retrain, we want to understand this. And they understand that this is a research use only tool today, yeah. but they can also see the future. And when you look at pdl one expression, how that's not predictive. When you look at a mutational burden signature, it's a bulk of assessment, it's an arbitrary score. So being able to really understand the tissue, the context in which the disease is found is key. So the pathology community is incredibly excited by the information we're getting here. And hopefully these tools move into LDT assays and so on. That sounds about right to me with regards to the pathologist, because sometimes I would think they see the tissue as it is, but then sometimes what you get back from bulk doesn't sync up because what you're looking at in terms of the transcripts is an aggregate of whatever you're seeing. But if they focus on specific areas, they can see that it's actually more severe in those specific spots. Yeah, exactly. The wealth of information we can now glean off tissue, you know, you can get metabolic data, you can get breakdowns on macrophages, you can get breakdowns on tertiary lymphoid structures. So it's not just pdl one expression, it's multiple dimensions of data that you can get here. And then that becomes powerful. I know you've mentioned Spanish flu and you've mentioned the different types of tissue that you're looking for in COVID. Can I get a teaser of the other things that you're working on at the moment in spatial? One of the projects we're currently working on in the lab is looking at the aging microenvironment and how does the microenvironment of tissues change over time. So some of the breastwork I alluded to earlier describes that, but we've also done a lot of retrospective studies with spatial and skin, head, neck and lung cancer. Now we're starting to validate those signatures in prospective studies. And then that's going to be key to really understand what these signatures hold. You know, the Spanish flu work is, is an exciting project, which has come through the infectious disease community. But I think there's still a lot to understand in COVID too. What are the long-term impacts on multiple organs? We can start to understand the impact on the lungs, but what about the heart? What about the placental tissue? What about brain tissues? In a double-blinded study, we can see transcriptional changes in the brain tissues. We can see different DNA damage, cell signal upregulated in, in cardiac tissue from COVID patients. We do see preeclampsia up in pregnancies and third trimester positive patients compared to gestational age match control. So we are seeing extra pulmonary effects of COVID. What we're trying to do is run a multi-organ study where we can start to understand the long-term impacts of it. It's very early days, but we are seeing real signal in those. So it is interesting. And I think there's a lot more work to be done there. I think that's a great way to end off the episode. Arutha, thank you so much for hopping onto the podcast and having this chat with me. Great. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.